This episode is brought to you by Thorn, and I have some incredible news for any of you that are in the military, first responder, or medical professions. In an effort to give back, Thorn is now offering you an ongoing 35% off each and every one of your purchases of their incredible nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is the official supplement of CrossFit, the UFC, the Mayo Clinic, the Human Performance Project, and multiple special operations organizations. I myself have used them for several years, and that is why I brought them on as a sponsor. Some of my favorite products they have are their Multivitamin Elite, their Whey Protein, the Super EPA, and then most recently, Cinequil. As a firefighter, a stuntman, and a martial artist, I've had my share of brain trauma and sleep deprivation, and Cinequil is their latest brain health supplement. Now, to qualify for the 35% off, Go to thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Click on sign in and then create a new account. You will see the opportunity to register as a first responder or member of military. When you click on that, it will take you through verification with GovX. You'll simply choose a profession, provide one piece of documentation, and then you are verified for life. From that point onwards, you will continue to receive 35% off through Thorn. Now, for those of you who don't qualify, there is still the 10% off using the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, for a one-time purchase. Now, to learn more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of the Behind the Shield podcast with Joel Totoro and Wes Barnett. This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not I have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you will get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, 
Francisco Morales. This episode is sponsored by yet another great company that I use and endorse, and that is Bubs Naturals. Now, they are offering you guys a discount on your first purchase with them, and I will get to that in a moment, but I really want to tell you the history of Bubs. Bubs was a call sign of Glenn Doherty, one of the courageous Navy SEALs that died in Benghazi, and his best friend Sean Lake co-founded Bubs Naturals not only to bring wellness solutions to the community, but to take 10% of the profits and donate to charities in Glenn's name. So I first came across their collagen through Jeff Nichols and had no preconceived notions or biases, but I started to witness in myself, my nails grow faster, my hair get thicker and longer, my skin, I've got very dry skin and it usually cracks in the winter, that has not happened this year. My joints, the aching, the kind of inflammation has definitely subsided. And then what really blew me away was actually my gut health. I saw that improve. And when you think about the gut is 80% of your immune system, that is incredibly pertinent. They have the apple cider vinegar gummies. I also take those. And then the MCT oil in a powder form has allowed me to put creamer back in my coffee after swearing off dairy for years. But when I have this creamer, it's adding energy, it's adding mental focus, so yet it's another supplement. Now, as far as efficacy, they're the only collagen that is 100% NSF for sports certified and Whole30 approved. So as I mentioned, the discount code, they are offering you 20% off a one-time purchase by using the code SHIELD at bubsnaturals.com. And if you want to hear the full story behind Bubs Naturals and the courage of Glenn Doherty, listen to my interview with Glenn's best friend and Bubs co-founder, Sean Lake, on episode 558 of the Behind the Shield podcast. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Leah Bartow. Now, Leah is not only a CrossFit athlete, a coach, and a gym owner, but she is one of the members of BirthFit. And this incredible organization has been educating women in overall wellness. So we discuss a host of topics from dispelling some of the pregnancy myths, physical and mental health during conception, postpartum depression, nutrition, supplementation, pelvic floor health, and so much more. Now, before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of 650 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person who needs to hear them. So with that being said... I introduce to you, Leah Bartow. Enjoy. Well, Leah, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time and coming on the Behind the Shield podcast today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me and looking forward for the conversation. So I also want to say thank you to one of my fellow coaches at my CrossFit, CrossFit Iron Legion, I must say mine, where I coach, um, CrossFit Iron Legion in Ocala, Isabel Ramirez. So she is actually one of your BirthFit certified coaches. Yeah, Isabel's awesome. And she came down here at our gym to do her 
coach training. So got to hang out with her for a weekend. I think she stayed an extra night, hit up one of our classes at our gym and my husband coached. So he got to get to know her a little bit too. So we, we really enjoyed her. Fantastic. All right. Well then for people listening, where are we finding you on planet earth today? So I am outside of Houston, Texas, small suburb called Katy, Texas. Um, It is hot, um, very hot. And um, yeah, this is kind of, I should say with BirthFit, our hub is now in Texas. So Lindsay, our founder is in Wimberley and I'm down here a little bit further south in the Houston area. Beautiful. Well, I would love to start at the very beginning because you've got a very, you know, unique story yourself before you even got into the BirthFit space. So tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Yeah, so I was born and raised in Houston, Texas. I've been here my whole life. Um, the furthest I got was Austin for school. I went to the University of Texas and college and then came back to Houston. So um, you know, I grew up in, um, I would say your traditional standard family, um, middle class parents, both worked really hard, were, um, were self-employed. So I grew up seeing, you know, what hard work looked like, what struggling looked like, um, in the sense of always having to work for what you get. So being self-employed, my parents had you know, great seasons and they had rougher seasons, but, um, I had one brother, he's four years older than I am. And, um, we were very provided for, we were very loved. I will say I did grow up in a very, um, probably more of an emotionally unattached family. We're more of like the grew up, like didn't show much affection, but loved each other, um, if that makes sense. And then growing up, I was always into athletics. And my basis of everything was about 10 years of gymnastics. And that was kind of the first thing also that, you know, individual sport, you're very isolated there. Um, A lot of tough times, but great reward. But I also learned there very much to compartmentalize, don't show emotion, you don't show pain. Um, you know, very stoic because you couldn't, right? If somebody else had, you know, a bone sticking out because of an injury on the other side of the gym, you don't look and you keep going. If you hurt yourself, you don't cry, you keep going, you push through it. So um, I would say I grew up in a family that really, in a lovingly way, mustered that. And um, I would say that made me into the athlete, the human that I am, but I've had a lot of things to work through and overcome because of that as well. Um, But growing up, did every sport imaginable. Um, athletics were something that always came very natural to me that I excelled in. And I loved that. Like I played a lot of team sports, but I did a lot of individual things too. I thrive in that, you know, that individual competitive atmosphere. And um, that's something that never really left me. And I will say that, you know, going to college was the first time in my life where I didn't play a specific sport. I chose to um, not go to college to play basketball um, forewent some scholarships and things like that and decided I'm just going to do the student thing, had fun for four years for sure. Um, but, you know, graduating, like immediately got called into the CrossFit world and that kind of took off there. So, um, you know, that's a thousand foot overview, but that's a lot of what made me into who I am today. And um, for better or for worse, you know, things that I'm still unpacking. So with your parents being self-employed, what were the actual professions that they were in? What were they doing with their, their careers? Yeah, so my mom worked from home as um, like a hairstylist. 
So she was the once in a salon and eventually was at home. And I mean, I will say she still does this. She's um, in her sixties and still has the same clients that she's had for years and years. Um, so, you know, she's very old school um, cash pay kind of just, cheap old school barbershop slash hairdresser. And so it's not like she, she was more of a stay at home mom with like a hobby, I would say, whereas my dad was in general contracting wallpaper, hanging um, interior homes, things like that. So depending on, you know, the market was important and, you know, when people are getting cosmetic additions to their homes and without the use of marketing and things like that, it's like, I remember him like, physically going out to do bids and then having to come back in at 5 p.m. every night and call the people back and say, I did the numbers and this is what it's going to cost. And, you know, it's funny now because it's like we have systems for that. You don't even have to show up at someone's house really. And um, I did, I do remember like seeing him put in so much work and I do remember the seasons where it's like he wasn't getting much work or um, like, I never really knew it as struggling, but I knew when like he needed work. And then there were these high seasons of like, he's getting so much work that he's telling people no. So I do remember just that fluctuation growing up for sure. But um, seeing him work every single day, whether on the phone in person, like very much a, a manual laborious job. So you talked about gymnastics. Um, I did university of North London. I did uh, sports science years ago. And I remember some of the classes talking about the high level of athleticism at an early age. And obviously gymnastics is one of those sports that you really think about young boys and girls and the impact that had on their reproductive journey. So with the lens that you have now, when you look back at yourself, the, the, the girls that you were competing with or, or even young athletes today, what is, what are some of the, I guess, pros and cons of being so focused on that one sport, especially with such a young developing body? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, it's gymnastics from a very, like, like I said, if they recognize talent in me, especially down here in the South, like I feel like gymnastics is, it's all over, but it's very much a hub and the Houston and Dallas areas and Texas and, and along states in the South. But if they recognize potential in you early, like they will grab you. And it's as much as your parents are willing to go, like you are in the gym five days a week for X amount of hours at a very young age. Um, and I think a lot don't know any difference. You learn, you know, amazing discipline and work ethic and you, you show up every day, whether you want to or not. And I remember there being a lot of tears, a lot of, I want to quit. I want to stop doing this, but you know, do you really? And no, I don't really, but this is scary, or I'm going through transition time here. Um, and so a lot of like, you never learn from an early age to really listen to your body, you learn to just push through. Um, so again, it's like, you injuries don't just happen, right? Like it's, it's a ticking time bomb, usually your body's telling you and we're ignoring those signs. So I think early on, you're told to not listen to your body. Don't pick up on the signs that it's communicating. You push through. You have a task at hand. You do it. Um, and so I do think that that, you know, in young athletes, it can be, it, it's great for the sport, but the sport isn't the rest of your life. And I feel like those things at such a young age get so impacted into you that it like the that age window before 10 years old, if you're already hopping in at the, the younger ages is like, it's like hypnotism. That's just what your brain and your mind and your body starts to know. 
so um, the way it carried over, especially later on in life was just like, you know, the overtraining aspect that you, you get what you came for, you come in and you get your work done, and you don't listen to your body. And if you're hungry, get through it, because you can eat when you're done. And, um, you know, I think for, for reproductive purposes, too, I mean, it is a very sheltering world gymnastics. So you know, like your team and your coaches, and that's it. So, um, you know, you don't, I would say there's like a socialization aspect missing, because you don't complain about things, you hang out with the same people every day, you don't have these outlets to say like, Hey, is this normal? Um, this is, you know, this is happening to my body. Is this normal? Because everyone that you're hanging out with is like, they're kind of going through the same things as you. So you start to think like, this is happening for me. And this isn't really the group I want to discuss it with, but who do I talk to about it? Um, so yeah, there's like this dynamic and it always goes back to, you know, the foundations that you grew up in. And I will say it laid a foundation for me in every other sport to be really good and to excel, but also comes with this mind game of like, okay, now um, it's time to think about conceiving or I'm pregnant or I'm about to give birth. And do I know how to listen to my body? Do I know what's coming up for my body? Am I comfortable sharing when something doesn't seem right or isn't normal or am I still continuing to pull back to like the childhood me of just compartmentalize, block it down, don't say anything and like everything will work out. And so I feel like that was such, like it was just so ingrained that it does carry over, you know, into all aspects of life. And the awareness now is something as I look at as I'm constantly working on because I don't know if you're ever going to fully undo that. Well, if my memory serves me right, doesn't it also that high level of athleticism, in, especially in gymnastics and young girls, it was delaying the onset of puberty? Have I got that correct? Yeah, it definitely could. You know, the way that, you know, specializing in any sport, I think at an early age is going to, I'm not a fan of it. Um, I think that all sports at early ages, weightlifting, gymnastics can be healthy and, and great for kids, but specializing and training in that realm absolutely can. And I think that if, you know, if you just look at gymnasts, if you look at your, you know, stereotypical 16 year old Olympic gold medalists, they talk like they're 12, they look like they're 12, their bodies just haven't developed in a way because they're constantly in that stress, like their bodies don't have an opportunity. But you see a lot of them retire and they go to college and they'll compete, but their bodies look totally different because, hey, for the first time ever in college, they're allowed to like go to the cafeteria and eat on their own and, um, you know, just live outside of these confines. And even there, it's still competitive, but you'll see them retiring from like elite level gymnastics to going into college or maybe even retiring completely being done. And they're almost unrecognizable because it's almost like their bodies just <sighs> take like a collective exhale. And then they have years and years of undoing, whether it's autoimmune diseases, um, you know, getting their cycle back. There's, I mean, so many gymnasts who don't have a cycle for so many years, um, just like any other competitive athlete. But yes, it definitely is going to wreak havoc on their body. And um, those, you know, what we know now is, hey, when you're 30 plus, and you start to experience these things, it's not because of what you're doing right now at 30 plus, it's the years leading up to that. And the body's so resilient that it, it took that on. And then now it's like, whoo, dumpster fire. 
Well, I think it's so important to to hear all these different voices, and this has come up a lot. And again, a lot of these things I talk about now, six years into the podcast, are because of the you know the, the genesis of these conversations. But from a pair of English eyes looking at American sports, I think the British system is a lot more diverse. Football, soccer is the main one that you, you know you can actually make money with. Everything else, you 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 know at best might end up on the telly, but you're probably not going to make a career out of it. So there isn't that kind of elitism in the school and college system like there is here so what you see in the uk is people that continue to play these sports you know well into their 30s 40s 50s whereas in america as i I joke out a lot there's a lot of uncle rico stories you know there's the 18 year old you know the the 30 year olds with the giant bellies are talking about Uh how they could have been if it wasn't for their acl or you know whatever and it's and it's you know funny on the surface but it's tragic when you look deeper because we have a an education system that seemingly a lot of times chooses performance of these children over their well-being and that's that's a very important conversation for parents especially yeah because what then you're seeing is or or what i often see is then that same that the uncle rico parent is now projecting their identity crisis onto their children and so now it's like i i i'll take the baseball world my husband um played professional baseball. And so we talk about this a lot because that's another thing here where we're just amazed at how quickly kids are specializing and the parents, like the way the parents get into it. And it's, it's sad. It's really like, Hey, they're seven years old and they have a hitting coach and a pitching coach and they're doing five nights a week playing games at 7 PM and they've got school the next day. And then on the weekends they play and they, they win these tournaments and their rings that they win look like, World Series, Major League Baseball rings. And it's like, what's left in life to accomplish if at seven years old, you're getting the same ring that, you know, our professional sports team is getting. Granted, it's not real diamonds, but still like what happened to trophies and ribbons and medals being okay. And so, um, but what we see is the parents, it's like, oh, and when they're not playing on the two days a week that they don't have games, they're out there practicing and they're, you know, batting practice and then the parents are pushing it. And it's like, for what? Um, and we're seeing, you know, ACL surgeries and, and the same in other sports, like um, ACL surgeries, Tommy John sur- surgeries, things like that at teenage years, we're like, that just shouldn't be happening. Um, and and then it's like, for what? Because do, do these kids now have an opportunity to play with their kids one day pain free? Or are they going to burn out, be so sick and so hurt that they don't get to enjoy that themselves? And then the vicious cycle just continues to repeat. Well, when I saw Simone Biles have have her, I'm not going to call it a breakdown, have her, you know, mental health pause that she chose to have in the Olympics, there was such a toxic flow of, you know, vilification, like that she was just, you know, lauded by many, many people. But what I saw was, you know, a, a girl that had probably been doing gymnastics her whole entire life, as you said, cr- growing up in this this environment where any sort of weakness is you know is not shown and as uh, one of my guests Rachel Vickery who's uh was a high level gymnast in New Zealand she was talking about like that if you're not 100% connected and you throw one of these you know routines you could break your neck so the the you know, spewing the keyboard warriors was so detached from this young girl who'd won numerous medals for this country already it's and bravely yeah bravely chose to actually say I am not in a place to do this today. So what was your perspective of that incident? 
Yeah, I'm glad that you asked that because, <clears throat> you know, I think that words matter. And, you know, there's this big thing on she quit, she, she let her team down. And, you know, quitting is a very impactful, it's a very negative connotation word. Um, and a lot of negative feelings, emotions, thoughts come up when you hear quitting. And I am not a proponent of, of the word, like of quitting, the action of actually quitting. But there is a time and a place to step away from something, to recognize that, hey, this is doing more harm on my body, on my mind, on my spirit than it is serving me. And so I, I don't like saying that what she did was quitting. Um, I think quitting is totally different. And so I like to define that or to not define that, but to make that differential because what she did, I agree. I have the background of gymnastics and I know the mental block that she had was literally like, she does not know what's happening in the air when she's trying to throw these things. You could end up paralyzed. You can end up dead. Like it's not just, you're going to have a scrape on your knee and you're going to brush it off. Right. Like this is big time stuff. So in her regard, I think it was very respectable what she did. It did it is it okay for people to feel let down by that, to feel sad and like to really be looking forward to her performance and to feel like, man, like I wish she would have done that. I see where people's emotions come up there. But, um, you know, this was a conversation I had literally yesterday where like, I don't view that as quitting. And I view it what she did as a, a very brave thing um, because she had the weight of the world, the eyes of the world literally on her. She was carrying that, and she had to put herself first. Um, and we were, my husband and I were just having this conversation yesterday because same thing for him when he chose to step away from playing baseball, from playing pro ball and to say, this isn't serving me. This isn't working for me. I've got to stop. Like that's not quitting. That's not the same to me as signing up for, you know, a 12 game season committing to something and just saying, this is hard. I don't like it anymore. So I'm going to stop. That's different. Right. But as an adult, um, in the tenure, in the years of their athleticism in that sport, like it takes so much more to recognize what's coming up for them and their their mental health and their physical health to say that's enough than to just literally be like, I'm quitting. And I don't think those two things are the same. So that was a long-winded way of saying, like, I think what she did was appropriate. I think it was respectable. And I do think it was the very best thing for her. Um, I also understand where people don't understand that or haven't been in this situation to understand the complexity of the things that she was doing and to feel let down or upset by it. I see where they're coming from. Um, but I think until you've been in it or you can empathize a little bit, it's hard to really wrap your mind around it. There's a UFC fighter from England, Paddy Pimlet, who was just uh -huh. uh, just one in uh, London last week. And he, you know, he's kind of like the next Conor McGregor. I'm sure he doesn't want to be compared to the two, but I mean, there's a lot of a lot of hype behind him, and he absolutely walks the walk. The end of this last win, he beat a very, very good fighter in the you know the, the talk when uh, they give him the microphone post fight. He told the story that the day before, right before his weigh-in, he learned that one of his best friends had taken his own life, and made this very powerful speech about men. You know, we 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 pull things in where we carry it on our shoulders and we need to start talking and as he put it i'd much rather have you crying on my shoulder than go to your funeral the next week and i feel like simone did the same kind of thing with that i mean it wasn't intentional she didn't feel safe doing it but 
her holding her chin high, I think, really paved the way for probably a lot of young athletes, whether they're young now, whether they're older and they were young athletes, but women in general who also feel like they can't talk sometimes to to be okay with, as you said, taking that pause rather than it being framed as, oh, you're a quitter. Yeah, you know, it's I there's there's an aspect to any sport at a certain level that you could probably say this about, but there's very much in the gymnastics world that I would consider like is an abusive sport and it's getting better and changes are being made because of athletes who are willing to speak up and stand up. But she is an example to little girls, to girls growing up and teenage girls who are in this vicious cycle of don't say anything, what you're feeling, like ignore it. Like you're wrong. If you think it's not normal, you don't have a coach to talk to, to trust that's going to back you up. The fact that she was able to do what she did and her coaches backed her, her coaches stood up for her. Like that is what the sport needs because it's not there. It's very abusive. And I think it's like, again, I think these are the kinds of conditions and behaviors that now will show up later on in their marriages and their relationships and their parenting that it's like, I don't have trust in my partner. I'm scared to confide in my partner. I can't express emotions to my partner. I'm afraid to be affectionate with my partner. Um, And then with kids, it's like, you know, how do I, can I receive affection from them? Will I give them enough affection? Do they feel safe with me? Like all of these things I feel like come full circle and, for me, it's like to, to sacrifice almost to, to dedicate, you know, let's say 21 years of her life to this sport um, to go out and basically be able to say, I did something for me after I've given so much of myself to everyone else. And I've endured, we know that she's endured various kinds of abuse and things like that. Like, I think that is so needed um, to start to heal and to start to change because if those things don't happen from someone in her position, it's not going to happen at all. And it's just going to be this, you know, silent epidemic. That's like, we can't continue to keep functioning the way that we are as human beings. And I think it starts in that early vicious age cycle. So yes, like men need outlets, women need outlets, but we need to be able to see and hear people like this, say those things to almost give permission um, because it's not coming from coaches or trusted ones that, you know, as a parent, it's not like, oh, I'm sending my kid to this thing. And I trust the coach to say this. Like, I need to know that they're hearing it from me or from their role models, not from those that they're away with and expected to perform for, if that makes sense. Oh, it does completely. And I think uh, I'm sure if you look at the metrics of Patty's, you know, soundbite speech on his social media versus what it would have been, maybe his, his knockout highlight I guarantee you the numbers speak volume that people need to hear that. And the same with Simone. I'm sure that there was there was so many people that, you know, watched that video and, and reshared it. And I think this is something I've talked about a lot. When are we told to be vulnerable? When we are we told to be, you know, courageous storytellers, to be kind, be compassionate? I mean, whether you're left or right, I'm neither. But, you know, look at Donald Trump, look at Joe Biden, are either of those preaching kindness, compassion, courage? No, they're beating their chests and saying, you know, how how manly they are and, and 
clearly it's the, <laughs> the opposite in reality. So we need the yeah. real leaders of the world to step up and have the courage to be vulnerable because that's what everyone's thinking. They've just bought into this facade that a lot of us were raised on, which is exactly like you're talking about, compartmentalize, suck it up, you know, move on, no pain, no gain, all this bullshit that a lot of us were entrenched in for years and years and years. Yeah, and I think, and um, you know, this might pull us into another area, but, you know, these conversations are so important from, like when you do think about reproductive rights and, and conversations around our bodies and like just thinking about like sex ed and conversations around like sexuality in, in schools, it's like, I come back to the women, like women not being able to trust their bodies, know about their bodies. Like what we teach women is like abysmal it's like oh you get the cycle and it's dreadful and you're gonna hate it not like oh this cycle is like your fifth vital sign it shows your health it's a it you know it's it's a world of what you know how you feel how you perform um it's you know reproduction it's how you create babies and like it's this beautiful thing but we teach girls from a very young age to like hate that about their body and it's such a crucial part of us like we have to accept that to like truly dive into our feminine. Um, but we're, we're told that we just need to like to hate it, to dread it every single month. And it's like, well, think about that. You're setting this, this child up from preteen or teenage years to literally, literally dread something that they're going to be dealing with for the long term. Like we're setting them up for failure. And then no wonder it's like, let's get every single one of them on birth control. So you no longer have to have a period or can control your period or they're not too heavy or whatever. And then it turns into like, okay, now I'm married and I'm happy. I want to have a baby. And then it's like, my body's so messed up. I'm so disconnected. I know nothing. And it's like these conversations around the more feminine aspect aren't happening. We live in such a masculine dominated world and you know, it's not like it's it's the yin and the yang. It's not feminine is bad, masculine is good, or vice versa. It's like we need an even blend of both. But the world that we live in is so masculine, and we've so neglected the feminine. And the feminine is so it's it's in charge of the creativeness, the fun, the pleasure, um, the feelings, the emotions, like all of those things that we're missing in the world today could start at such an earlier age if we just had like teenagers embrace these beautiful things that are happening to our bodies and and in that space so um you know that was kind of a detour in the conversation but it is so important because it's not just in the world of athletics or sports it's all over and we've just totally neglected this super important part like we need the masculine we need the feminine and we've just really kicked the feminine to the curb yeah, well, I mean, just again, from a, a an older generation looking at today and you see songs like WAP and, you know, the, I mean, the porn, you know, this is yeah. out the shadows, the porn industry and, and so much violence and, you know, that that element, it's not lovemaking, it's, it's such a dark, dark web behind that. And then you look at our young boys and girls and they're being raised on this. And I think even with, you know, whatever people's stance is on, on abortion, the same as with gun control, where is the conversation on mental health? There is not one woman in this planet that would voluntarily get pregnant just so they can terminate that pregnancy. So what are we doing to educate young men to 
to you know to to be um responsible with their contraception and be respectful and date and what are we doing for women that have the same self-respect you know it's so if we're not addressing that and we're just talking about if you do like you know binary code are you pregnant are you not pregnant are we going to whip it out you're going to keep it well where's that entire conversation the same as with with the mental health we're not going to stop school shootings by putting more guns in we're not going to stop shootings by taking all the guns away we have to talk about why are our human beings at the point where they're suicidal and or homicidal so yeah i mean i think that that education rather than putting a condom over banana high-fiving and saying all right you're good for, for you're yeah. good for sex you know yeah. we could do a lot lot better so much so i think you know it's a lot of these polarizing conversations or i should say polarizing topics it's like we live in a world that doesn't allow a gray area. And so abortion is not black or white. Gun control is not black or white, but we live in a world where we leave no option because we can't, we can't settle on a gray area. We're so divided and so polarized that it's got to be one or the other. And that's really unfortunate because people really suffer because of that. Um, so I think like, you know, in, in terms of abortion, it's like, again, like you said, you know, abortion doesn't fix people's, and I don't want to call it a problem or an issue, but it doesn't make things better. It's still a decision that's not made lightheartedly that sticks with you forever. And it's not just a simple fix, but also like you can't take away women's rights to birth or not birth a baby and not be better about teaching them about their cycle, about pregnancy, how to avoid pregnancy, about, um, you know, supporting them like no paid maternity leave and expecting them to survive with this baby, but also have to get back to work and have no support. Like there's so many things that we're not doing that, okay, if you're going to be so absolute, so black and white to say that you can't do this, you have to be better in so many other areas that we're failing. And we're just, and, and that starts again, like I said, the conversations with teenagers, like let's really have a conversation with teenagers about sex, about the cycle and about these things from a very honest and open point, then, you know, like you said, condom on a banana and call it a day. Um, and so that's the thing is like, we live in this world of black and white, but the gray area is where the important information is. And if people would get off of their left, right, like left side, right side, like this is the only way we could maybe, you know, come up with something that works for more people, but we just don't live in that world anymore. And it's really sad because um, people are suffering on both sides. Absolutely. Actually, I was looking for educational material for my son as he started getting you know, through puberty and out the other end. And I really had to search deeply just to find, end up in a book. I couldn't find any videos that's that, you know, talked about exactly what we're talking about just middle of the road common sense this is sex without a kind of victorian demonization of sex on one side or all the way all of a sudden you're grinding all over people but just a normal human yeah. being conversation and i found a book in the end and it and it was good because it talked about you know all the different sexualities and um but was was very just raw and honest but that's it if we're not giving kids the guidebook and i think another thing that in my observation too you can't lord yourself as some you know protector of of unborn children and in the same breath demonize the homeless prostitutes you know so if you're not willing to take care of humans while they're 
the ones that were born, then I don't think really, really, you know, it, it's hypocrisy to in the same breath say, you know, this is this is immoral or this, you know, this whatever people's stance is. And if they're the same people that, you know, ignore the person who's lying in the street or is happy to to lock up addicts, you know, all these things that we see. So I think, yeah, if we're going to move that needle culturally, we have to look at, as you said, the, the whole the whole model, all that gray area in the middle, a little bit the left, a little bit the right. But that would absolutely, you know, really, really move the needle. But the extremism that we see over and over again just divides a nation. I think it's partly on purpose, to be honest. I really do. Yeah. Um, right. While we're fighting amongst each other, they can do whatever they want up there. But yeah, the moment that we start unifying and demanding an entirely holistic environment for our children and our adults to thrive in, then I don't think a lot of these issues would be huge issues anymore. And we'd have a lot of resources then to pour into the, the few that are still suffering. Yeah, and I think that's where, like, as a parent, and I have young kids, I have a three and a half and a 16 month old, but it's like, I'm recognizing the radical responsibility in my generation as a parent, that like, I owe it to my kids, I don't, I can't expect our teachers to do it, our government to do it, like, I can't expect anyone else to teach them but myself. Um, Now, do I want them to learn from the ways of the world and to be curious and to be naive and to make mistakes. And, you know, like, of course I do, but I just feel this, this strong calling that it's like, Hey, I can't leave it up to anybody else. If I want to instill, you know, values, morals, beliefs into my kid, they need to a see it in me first, but I need to be so hyper aware that like everything that I'm teaching them that's coming through my mouth, is coming from the place of like, this is like what I want this little human that I've created to grow up and be. And so I think, you know, you talk about like your parents and your upbringing. And I say like, I had a very like loving family and they did the best with what they had. They had tough upbringings too, and they have their own trauma and things to deal with. But, um, you know, there are areas now that you can recognize and say like, Hey, this wasn't the best thing, or this still affects me today. And I feel like every time an opportunity comes up where my kids, where I might be ready to respond or react in a certain way, like I'm just repeating to myself, do it different, be different. Don't repeat the cycle because we have to just take this responsibility on ourselves. I think as a generation and as a parent to make sure this happens because I think we're just so divided and everything's so polarized at this point that nobody else, like you can't expect anybody else to really do it. Yeah, no, I agree completely. Now you mentioned about finally going to college and not pursuing a sport while you were there or not, or not going through a scholarship. So what were your career aspirations then? And then lead me through to your first CrossFit experience. Yeah. So in college, I, I'll be honest. I, I, I was there to have fun. Um, so I was my major and, you know, big university, you could do whatever major you wanted. I was like corporate communications, literally picked it because it was the most broad and it had the least amount of math. It's like, what am I not good at? And I don't know what I want to do with my life. So what's going to get me in the most doors. Um, and so, and I did well in school and um, I enjoyed it, but I, you know, graduated with a communications degree and I've always been a big sports junkie. I've loved sports forever. And I was really into it there. Um, So I always thought that I wanted to be to work for like a major 
professional sports organization and marketing and media. Um, you know, I had aspirations of being like front office before women were really in the front office and, you know, professional sports, things like that. And so those were all of the internships that I sought out. Um, when I graduated college, I worked with the Houston Texans. That's our NFL football team. Um, and that was kind of the route that I thought I wanted to go. Um, so this parallels with when I, when I graduated, I also started crossfitting. And um, this is also where, okay, so we'll t- my husband at the time, well, sorry, my husband now was also crossfitting at the time. He had just stepped away from baseball. And so he was at the gym like a mile down the road. And I knew who he was because he was from Houston and had a big name. He was a baseball player, was like, in high school, I knew who he was. A lot of my mutual guy friends played baseball with him in high school and college even. Facebook was around. So we knew who each other were. We just never met. And um, I think I started paying attention to him more because I saw like, oh, this guy that I know of is also doing CrossFit down the road. And 2010 CrossFit is like pretty OG. Like it, it, you know, when somebody's doing it, it wasn't just like this crazy thing happening all the time. So funny enough, I'm paying more attention to him in the social world. And I walk in my first day of my Houston Texans internship and he's sitting there. And so there's about 50 interns and a bunch of different departments. And within the PR communications department, there's four of us. And he was one of them. So we made that eye contact. Like, I know who you are. I know who you are. We didn't say anything. And um, we just went on with our day and it was lunchtime. And this is when I was drinking like all the Kool-Aid. So it was like, okay, we're, we're doing the zone diet and you, you know, you're eating this, this many almonds and this many strawberries and whatever. And they're like, first day of your internship, we ordered pizza for everyone. And you're like, in your seat, like, Oh man. And it was funny because the athlete dining hall was across the way and they have all the food. And so I'm standing in line again, quiet, not going to stand up for myself. Like, okay, I guess I'll eat a pizza pizza. And he walked up to me and was like, Hey, you want to go across and get a salad instead? And I was like, yes. Like he just knew we were both in the same mindset. So anyways, we hit it off in that um, internship, but all that to say, I eventually, so he was already a season into CrossFit had already done. We didn't even have regionals back then. It was sectionals. Um, and he was really good and was close to qualifying for the games that year. So he was like hitting it hard and heavy. And through us kind of connecting there was like, well, I might as well start going to the gym down the street too. And he can start coaching me. And um, I would say got competitive pretty quickly. So 2011 was the first year of regionals for those that did cross or that do CrossFit and regionals is such a big thing now. Um, that was the first year of actual regionals. So we had the open and then regionals in the games. And um, I remember regionals 2011 was my first like RX quote unquote competition. I remember being like, I don't belong here. And the girls that were there, like some OGs, I don't know, you know, if you're listening and you're an OG, it was like Lindsay Smith and Carrie Kepler, Lisa Teal, like these women who just looked like chiseled athletic women. I didn't look like that. And I was like, I don't belong here. But um, I ended up placing top 10 that year at regionals and Asia went on to qualify for the games. And that was kind of our entry into CrossFit together. So we were competitive um, at that level for the next three, four years um, before we transitioned into the more business realm. 
So what took you from being an athlete to actually being a box owner? Yeah, so I would say we were coaching, right? So that was back when it was like, it was cool to coach. It was like, oh, you get a free membership to coach classes. Cool. I hang out at the gym all day anyways. It's like, who needs to make a living? Um, so that was funny because I thought like, oh, I'm going to go into professional sports and pursue this. And it's like, oh, I'm coaching at the local gym. Like, how do you explain that to your parents? You know, it's like, what? You're getting $20 a class and a free membership. And we think it's the coolest thing. So, um, but I'm passionate about it. I love it. It's like, we're doing it all day, every day. And my boyfriend who I'm hot and heavy with at the time is doing it. So it was the cool thing to do. But Asia, um, so he competed 11, 12, and 13 at the games. And then 14, 2014 focused on weightlifting. And the reason why was come, so we opened our affiliate in 2012. And that was a really big decision because it was like he had a name in the sport at the time. I think there was like this expectation that like, oh, you're so-and-so and you compete at this level. So you're going to have this kind of a gym and these competitive style of CrossFit is never what resonated with us for general public. Like we always knew what we did was different and not what everyone else needed. And so when we started gym, we actually didn't have a location. He started the gym. I was coaching at other gyms because he couldn't afford to bring me on. I was making more money elsewhere. And he started um, like literally in a park um, and his dad and a couple of his buddies were his first members and they had a few kettlebells and dumbbells and that's how they did it and I think that was really hard on him because it was like he had people in the community that were like I will be your investor we'll throw you know 50k at this and we'll do this and whatever and Asia really just wanted to like do it himself his own way so he was battling that like do I go all in get the most beautiful space all the equipment but have to pay all these people back and do it their way or do I just stay in my lane and do me and so that's why in 2013 he very much felt like, you know, if I'm giving 100% of my training or to my training, then I'm not putting enough in my business and I'm failing my community. If I'm putting 100% in my business, I'm not training enough to like be at the level that I want to be at. And that was really hard for him. Um, and so he kind of had to make a decision there on like, what do I want to keep doing? And he actually wasn't going to compete in 2013. His coach at the time was CJ Martin of CrossFit Invictus. And he told CJ like, here's what, here's where I am. So we had at that time moved into a sports specific complex. It was a baseball, like push two batting cages. You push the net back. We had a turf ground, zero barbells, zero racks. It was dumbbells, kettlebells, and, and some boxes really. And it like, we probably had the best movers around because they didn't ever learn with a barbell. It was just like, here's, here's how you move. Here's how you move well. And here's a little bit of weight graduated into like the corner of that gym. And Asia was like, I really want to grow this thing. I want to do this thing, but like, I can't do that if I'm focusing on the sport. And so he had that conversation with his coach. And um, it's funny because thinking on it now, his coach is like, okay, I understand, you know, we won't do Asia's like, I'm done. Like, I don't want to do anything. She's just like, okay. And so a couple months down the road, it's like time to get ready for the open and Asia's phone rings and it's DJ. And he's like, well, I've been thinking about it. And here's what I think. We won't train more than once a day and we won't exceed 90 minutes, but I still think that you should give it a go and just like use your experience. Like nobody else has the experience you do. 
go in there, no expectations. Let's just see what you do, keeping it a minimal. And so Asia was like, okay. So again, he didn't think he was going to qualify that year. And again, on experience, he showed up qualified and he knew after that, he was like, I'm done. It's time for my business. So that was kind of his last hurrah. And from there we went and he was able to open um, with, so his brother himself, and then we have a small partner who's like a third brother, um, got us into like a warehouse space. So that was about 1100 square feet. It was our first space. And I'm still working at another gym at the time. We quickly outgrew that. They knocked a hole in the wall, opposite side. So they have about 3000 square feet. Then they were able to bring me over full time. Um, and then now across the street, we have 7,500 square feet fully decked out, like just kind of progressed that way. So I would say from 2012, when we started to about 2014, 2015, it was, it was rough and it. it was build with what you have, expand when you're ready, but don't take money or handouts from anyone else. Let's do it our own way. And that really paved the way for us to be, you know, where we're at now and a beautiful facility and, um, with a program and a, and a kind of a community and the values that we, we never compromised on. Well, firstly, it's amazing to hear that kind of mirrors the owners of the gym where I train and coach. Um, I started actually started CrossFit back in like 06, 07. So pretty, yeah. pretty early on. But that was through just someone who was a member of a box coming to the fire station and showing us and we would do it with him. And then I got into the main site and then, you know, years yeah. later joined this gym. But they started, they had a farm. They did it literally in the backyard of their farm. And then they had exactly like you, a single bay, double bay. And now they have this big, beautiful gym downtown Ocala. But what I loved was what you said about we didn't have barbells, so we taught people to move and added weight. What are some of the pros that you've seen? Because I've I've watched this kind of roller coaster ride. Um, I saw it quite pure at the beginning. I saw the competitive CrossFit. Um, uh, you know the what they call that the cultish element. The games come in, and all of a sudden everyone's wearing lifters and headbands and all that stuff. And then I feel like it's kind of gone back down again now, where you actually have seasoned coaches that are well-versed in or, or much better educated on the lifts, on the gymnastic movements, on mm-hmm. imbalances, on accessory movements. Um, so what have you witnessed in that kind of genesis from literally an AstroTurf and some some handheld weights through to where we are today in 2022? Yeah, you know, we always, like I mentioned, and I say we, I should give him total credit there because he he had a vision and he had the awareness even then at like, Hey, I'm an athlete at this level. He had the awareness of like, I'm the 1%. People sit at a desk all day. They're broken. They're sick. They're diseased. Like they need to move. They need to move well. And they need longevity. They need to be able to do this for the rest of their life if they want to. And that is where I think he settled into being okay with like, we don't have a bunch of fancy equipment. We don't have rigs. We don't have racks. We don't have all of this stuff, but here's what we do have. We have people that can move well and their foundations were so spot on. And so he took that. And even as the gym grew and the sport of CrossFit grew and people come in and they're like, I want this and I want to do this. And, Oh, you're, you're so-and-so. And I saw you on TV. So you must be the gym to do that. And I will say that he was very firm. And from the beginning, our message has always been, that's not what we do. And if that's what you want, there's a gym, probably 10 of them, half a mile down the road, 
we are happy, like, let's, let's get you in there. That's better fit for you. So I will say that one of the things that we've done has always just been staying really true to ourselves there, because we know that like, we are, we are put here to serve the 99%. That's why we have, we don't call it a CrossFit program. We have a GPP, general physical preparedness. We need um, our demographic that we're seeing doesn't need all of these fancy things. So it's been our goal and our um, mission from the beginning. And we've never let up on that. We've even had, and I'll say like, we've had dear friends of ours who um, bought into what we did for a long time. And then eventually caught that bug. And I was like, but I want to do this. And I see like these other people doing this and why don't we do this? And um, you know, it, it would have been really easy, especially with those people you have like personal relationships with to be like, you know what, you're right. Like maybe we should start implementing this. Maybe we, you know, and we've just always, we've listened and we've heard it, but we've always just said, that's not us. And if you've grown to that place, like, great. We've had people leave and just say, Hey, I can do this in my garage, but do the other things that I want. And we almost take it as a compliment to be like, do you know how hard it is to get someone to the point where they're confident going in their own space and doing it? And then also being consistent doing it like that takes a level of coaching and um, learning for them to even get there. So I will say that we've never compromised on our thoughts there. And then just the progress we've seen, like some of the members that we have, you know, in their later seventies and, um, those that came in severely broken, severely sick, and just do a GPP program three times a week, and they look better, they feel better, they perform better across the board. And so it's been really um, validating now when you look in and you see that like, hey, we don't like we never compromised on our values. And we've always been here like for the best and interest of the people. And we've also always been okay with telling people no telling people we're not a good fit for them because the people we want to work with are a very specific group of people and those are the people we really excel at working with so yeah it's just been I would say we de-affiliated from CrossFit um, before everyone did and there was crazy things happening like it just we love CrossFit we give it so much um, credit it's it's who we are at our at our base but we didn't feel like we were doing it justice with the facility we were running and people were coming in looking for specific CrossFit and that's not what we were delivering. And that was confusing. So um, we give it all the credit in the world, but we're very different and we feel like that serves our people a lot better. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that's, that's probably at the core of, you know, Greg's vision as well. I'm hoping he's supposed to be coming on the show at some point, which would be amazing to hear that. But I agree with you completely. And watching, you know, the genesis of, of at least the, the members I've seen once I got into the gym where I am now is every wannabe Ridge Froning and Tia Claire that walked through the door, six months later, they were gone. Whereas we've got so many members that have been there for years and years and years, and they're regular people. Some of them are in their 80s in our gym, which is incredible. And they move. They don't, you know, are they moving beautifully? No, not yet. And But just the, the humility to understand it's not about the weight on the bar. It's not about even using a bar. Sometimes you might need to use a kettlebell or a sandbag or a med ball or whatever it is. But it's getting that movement and then obviously the nutritional conversation which some members do very well and some sadly despite all their time in the gym obviously it's not happening at home as well which is very heartbreaking to see that work um kind of being counteracted by poor nutrition but 
yeah, I mean, that to me is is the core of what it is. I'm a firefighter, so I love seeing firefighters and cops and, you know, corrections officers going in. They're not looking to win the games, but they're sure as hell hoping that their strength and conditioning will help save a life at some point. Yeah, I think, too, like what makes a good coach, what makes a good gym owner is like your goals for other people are going to be different than goals they have for themselves. And so, um, you know, they are coming for what, like they're coming. You can offer them all of these things, but if you can't give them what they want, they're going to leave. And so at the end of the day, it's like, you have to hear them out. But in order to do that, you have to truly care. Like first you have to be asking questions and listening. And I will say that the system that we have is really good. And that like, like an example would be someone we're working with who's 17 self-conscious about weight because he wants to put on weight. He's, super skinny, wants, you know, more muscles, whatever has, you know, in three months is up 17 pounds of muscle looks great, feels great. It's not like what he's doing. He does not eat healthy food. And it's like cringeworthy for us. Cause you're like, Oh, I just wish we could do this a better way, but he's getting what he wants and the timing that he wants and he's happy. And those are his goals. And if he did it our way, he probably would have left a long time ago. So it's, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's getting better and we're seeing improvements, but we can't throw all of that at him at once. Other, other things are like, Hey, I, you know, blew my knee out and I want to eventually run this race again. And it's like, okay, we would love to do this, this, and this with you, but your timeline is to get you here. We're going to find a way to do it because that's why you're coming to us. So I do think it's important to know that as a, a gym owner, as a coach, like you it's a fine line of giving people what they want, but trickling in what they need. And eventually they come along and they're like, okay, you guys knew all along, but it does take a level of compassion and listening and caring about people. And if you're not in this to actual, actually better people's lives, to be a hand in bettering their lives, then you're not going to last long because it's just, it, it's cutthroat. Like they'll just go to another place. Right. But like, if you, if they know you care, you're truly invested. That's where you get those gems that are like, They've been with us for how long? Like they've stuck with us through this and they're not going anywhere. And that's such a great feeling because they know that they're cared for and all of their needs are met here. Even if it doesn't mean that that's what we want, like they're getting what they need out of it. Yeah, well, I think that holistic side, again, as we talked about earlier, is just so important. So that kind of leads me to BirthFit then. Yeah. I have watched um, in general society, sadly, so many unhealthy philosophies being bought into it's okay to gain you know 50 pounds during pregnancy and all these these myths and then as a paramedic you get to see the you know the ill effects the pre eclampsia the uh, gestational diabetes and all these pseudo emergencies that we we respond to conversely i've watched so many of the female athletes in our gym maintain a healthy pregnancy and work out all the way obviously scaled and adjusted to you know their their change in anatomy have a healthy child and then recover incredibly well as well and not not you know insanely fast but just at a good rate and get back to where they were before so how did you find birth fit and talk to me about you know coming going from discovering it to actually being a part of the organization yeah so i knew i always knew i wanted kids and that was something that was i wasn't ready i wasn't yearning to have them i just knew that i would one day that was my goal and and what i always felt um, so it was always on my radar and I always thought it was fascinating to see women who were doing the things that I was doing. They were into fitness, they were competitive, things like that, 
but they were pregnant and they continued to train and work out. And it was like, I've never seen that before. I've always been told, you know, you're fragile, be careful, you know, don't lift weights. And then I started training women, like women in my classes as a coach would come in and be like, I'm pregnant. What do I do? And I knew enough to get them through, but I, you know, I was like, I actually should learn and and know this if I'm truly going to be coaching you. So I remember just first it piquing my interest and I ended up going to a seminar, um, I think in 2016, 2017. And it was, it was mind blowing. It was like, why doesn't everyone know this information? And how do I tell everyone all of this information? It was like, as a coach, as a human being, as a, as a woman, like we, we are missing a lot of things. So um, I drank the birth bit Kool-Aid and I also became a doula was like, okay, I want more. And so a birth doula, you know, I attend birth, I um, in hospital, out of hospital, you're almost like, some people refer to it as like a birth coach, you're an advocate, comfort measures, um, birth education, advocating for them, just helping them have the birth that they desire, whether it's, you know, the energy and the space that they're in, um, or just making sure that you're staying true to their preferences, that they're not being taken advantage of all of those things. So um, I became a doula in 2017. And that like, really, like, I love being a doula, because it marries my, you know, I love being a coach, I love working with women and advocating for women. But I also thrive like that competitor in me that that person who loves individual, you know, sports and the butterflies of the unknowns is like, you don't know what you're getting when you go on a birth. And I've always felt like I've thrived in those more intense or unknown situations. Like I, I've always been more of a performer than a practicer. So I love stepping into that role. And so every time I saw birth as a doula, it like affirmed me even more of like what I want my own to look like and the things that I want for myself and my family. And that was really cool um, to be able to like attend a birth and walk away and be like, I didn't like that. Or like, I loved that. And I, I want that incorporated into my birth somehow. Um, so that got me into birth fit in that realm. I became a birth fit coach, um, really implemented it heavily at our gym. We're in women's fitness classes. And eventually, um, you know, Lindsay and I, Lindsay's CEO, and we knew each other ahead of time, but we connected more and more and, um, was on the coaching staff. And then eventually we kind of just trickled down our birth fit staff to four of us. And it was myself, Lindsay, we have an admin and we have someone who helps with like our videography and our graphics. And so we went from like a bigger team to a smaller team. And um, I've really just become, you know, Lindsay and I are kind of one in one A in that regard. So my formal title is that I'm the online program director. I write a lot of our online programs. Um, I teach our virtual birth education class, things like that. But um, it's really allowed me to get the word out to more people that like, hey, we can do birth different. And what you've been told is probably the furthest from the truth. The system is failing us. We have an embarrassingly high maternal mortality rate. Our infant mortality rate almost equally as bad. Like we have to do better. And so, you know, things don't happen quickly in the medical world. We can't just wait for things to change and be better. We have to be the voices. And that's kind of what got us here. So like I said, I mean, I've seen a lot of the ill effects, whether it's just visible to, to any kind of layman's eyes or from the medical side. What are some of the 
the issues that you're seeing in a lot of pregnancies in the U.S. And, and are there any kind of uh, comparable countries where conversely they're doing it the the, the healthy way? And, and what are the differences in, in philosophies in those two countries? Yeah. Um, so I don't know specifically country to country the differences, but I will say that we're not doing it well in America. And I can say that with statistics to show that we have the highest maternal mortality rate of all industrialized countries. Um, we spend $98 billion a year on birth and 99% of births that are being documented are happening in the hospital. So um, we have a system that is currently failing. And I say that um, not because, you know, I think the hospital is bad or that ob guys are bad or anything. It's just something's got to change. And um, like I said, things don't change very quickly, but there's a lot of old, outdated misinformation. There's a lot of OB-GYNs and doctors that are pushing old information. And if you think about medical textbooks, like the medical textbook that OB-GYNs use in school, it's still a variation of the very first one that was written in the teens. And um, it's written through a lens of, you know, middle-aged white guy who didn't really ever observe birth. He was observing the granny midwives and those who were really good at, at deliveries um, and then putting his lens on it. And then now we have a textbook that has evolved from that. Like that is still the basis of it. They're not teaching breach. They're not teaching um, vaginal twin births. They're not like, so a lot of these practices are becoming lost because newer generation ob just aren't being taught. And so you've got to think that in a country where our um, cesarean rate is, you know, all, is one in three and that's a lot, um, 33%. And that's the last time we did the numbers. It's gone up, I think since, you know, COVID and all of that, but um, you know, one in three births is a cesarean and there's, that's a major surgery and complications happen in major surgeries and every in intervention that happens in a birth, you are more likely to need more intervention. And so I just think we have a system that's set up um, to, you know, it's, it's overrun, they're full, they're busy. Doctors don't get paid for sitting with you for 30 minutes to an hour and learning all about you. They get paid to see you for 10, 15 minutes, ask a few questions, get into the next room for the next person. And so we still have doctors and not just doctors, I, I, like midwives, whatever you want to call it, but that are saying, don't lift above 20 pounds. Don't get your heart rate above 140. Be careful. You need to lay in bed, bed rest. Like we, we don't have good solid research on these things, but we have some good research like on the benefits of exercising and pregnancy on, on what an actual healthy diet is and not the diet that's being recommended. Um, so yeah, I think there's a lot of misinformation and misguidance out there. And I think it's taught women to fear childbirth. The hospital is in place to take care of someone, to fix someone. When you are diseased, when you are hurt, you go there to get treatment, to be better. Um, pregnancy is not that you're not sick. You're not you like, birth is a natural thing that rarely needs medical intervention. And it's beautiful when there's a time and a place for it and they are there to do it. But more often than not, I would say 97% of births are low risk and don't really need much interference. Well, I've always thought there was a, an arrogance to taking something that we used to just drop in a field and now all of a sudden, you know, that, that it needs medical intervention. Now, of course, 
I was one of the the men and women that was called. God forbid there was a true emergency, yeah. you know, and there are some life threatening ones that can happen for the baby and the mother. But we've just pulled so far away from what, as you pointed to, so many people were able to do at home. And, you know, now with the proximity of a lot of hospitals to be able to do a home delivery with with a midwife or a doula, um, but still having that um, intelligent plan. OK, if something happens, then this person is, you know, you know yeah. is five minutes down the road or whatever it is. But you don't see that. And, and with the CSEC, I find that maddening. To me, that's an emergency surgery. And now it's become a surgery of convenience where, you know, the the OB or the patient or both want to do it on a Tuesday afternoon, regardless of when the baby actually wants to come out. So, you know, what's how have we devolved and how do we fix that mentality? Yeah, um, we we talk about this a lot. And, you know, I think I will say there are things that are being implemented to help because I think so ACOG, um, American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology, they're kind of the governor, the one that oversees all of this, um, you know, they're recognizing we can't like the pendulum can't continue to swing anymore this way. We've got to get back to the middle. So they have implemented things in recent years, um, like making active labor, declaring active labor at six centimeters instead of four centimeters. So before someone needs to be admitted into a hospital, before we're really giving much intervention, like we need them to be in active labor. And the difference in four to six centimeters could be 30 minutes. It could be three days. Like we don't know, but it gives women more time to labor, babies to come on their own. Um, Other things, you know, limiting the number of cesareans. I know that I think just, awareness around it, more people are asking cesareans in hospital, like, what is your cesarean rate? Um, And again, some like I live in Houston, we have major hospitals, like they're high risk hospitals, where of course, those are going to be much higher. But um, I think there's, there's a time like, if you strongly don't want a C-section, but you're at a hospital that has 70 plus percent C-section rate, like, you probably need to get out of there if you're not a high risk pregnancy. Um, same with your provider. If you're with a provider that's already telling you like, well, at 20 weeks, based on where your placenta is, you just start to need, need to get in the mindset of a, of a cesarean. It's like, no, that's not the case, you know? So um, I think a lot of education needs to happen, but ultimately I think, you know, things that they're doing to help um, might slowly start to help. But I think really giving women the autonomy and the power and the information to understand that like birth is the one thing we've been doing forever. And this is like you were you were created ultimately to be able to do this. And so I think more awareness around out of hospital birth is great. Um, because like you said, I I get I had you know two home births with a midwife, but we absolutely have a plan for transfer. And she's not going to come to my house and do it if, if I don't have a hospital nearby. She's been a midwife of 30 years. She's caught, you know, thousands of babies and she's never lost a mom. And her, you know, if you put her statistics next to a hospital statistics, it doesn't, it doesn't match up. So I think a lot of like birth ed- education, that's why I'm so passionate about teaching it is like, whether you choose to birth in a hospital, whether you choose to birth medicated, unmedicated, you still need to know that there is inherent risk in everything that you do. And that is where it comes back to the intuition. What we talked about earlier is like your motherly intuition is so strong. And if you've always been told 
to neglect what's coming up inside of you, um, not to listen to your body, not to listen to your instincts, only be listening to what you're told, you could be missing out on really, really important things because your motherly intuition is speaking to you and usually is not wrong. So giving women the power to think about like, how does that feel for you when your doctor tells you not to live, lift above 20 pounds? Like, how does that sit with you? Well, that doesn't seem real, like not lift 20 pounds, but then, you know, have a baby, put them in a car seat, carry a diaper bag, pick up a toddler. Like you're going to be picking up more than 20 pounds very quickly. And so I think a big piece in what we try to cultivate a lot and birth fit within our programs and with our, when our, within our education is getting back to like that feminine, what's coming up for you, what feels okay for you, how you want to advocate for yourself, what do you want your birth to feel like, what do you want it, um, who do you want on your birth team, what are you okay with, where are your values, what are your values, and is this decision that you're making in alignment with that value, Um, you know, those are all things that I think are so important to be clear on going into the birth space, so that you don't get taken advantage of within the system that only wants to treat birth as a medical procedure. So I had a really fascinating conversation with a Canadian osteopath, um, Annette Verpio, and she has a thing called Posture Pro, where really between the, the, the feet and where they are you know, on the ground itself, the gaze, so you know, your eyes and the, the, the two eyes working together, and your jaw, um, those between the three of them, they can eliminate pain, but there's so many health benefits from aligning all those. But she made a point that you want to get all those things taken care of before you're even thinking about conception. Now, in a country that is 70% obese or overweight, to me, again, the layman's eyes, it seems like that is also a horrible place for a person to be in this world of you can't mention it, otherwise you're, you're accused of fat shaming. For the health of the child, um, you know, when you're already uh, overweight or obese. So talk to me about the the relationship between obesity and a healthy pregnancy and birth. Yeah, I mean, it's huge. And, and that is one of the single things that will make you truly a high risk pregnancy, right? So if you're obese, type 2 diabetic, heart issues, you know, all the things that come along with it or can come along with it you are automatically not just going to be pushed to be in a hospital for birth, but also heavily monitored throughout your pregnancy, more intervention than you want before the baby even gets here. Um, Then when you are in labor, like it's just going to be immediate. And the amount of things that you're hooked up to that you're exposed to because of the risk um, and monitoring, like needing to know how baby sounds, the overall weight of baby, baby's weight gain and, and the ability for, um, you know, their health um, to, I would say like your health is impacting their health. So we need a better look at the baby more often. We need a better look at you to make sure that you're having a healthy or as healthy as possible labor and delivery. But a lot of things come up with that. You mentioned like preeclampsia, you mentioned like so many gestational diabetes. These things come from malnutrition. Um, They come from being told that like, hey, it's okay to get pregnant and to be to gain this extra weight, be gentle on yourself, do these things. And it's like, at some point, we have to be selfish and take responsibility for our own health. And to just be told that it's okay, like you are putting yourself at risk, you're putting your baby at risk. And so of course, that's going to drive numbers up and things like that. But just thinking about 
like the things that your body needs in order to build and create a human. And if your body's already in such a, I say a deficit from like nutrients, from minerals, from the things that it needs, because it's so focused on keeping you alive, like you're not setting your baby up for, you know, to thrive. So anyways, I will say that it's just going to make pregnancy that much harder. Um, And I think it is a big reason why we lose so many because they're coming, they're showing up to like birth is the single most athletic event of your life. And so imagine being told not to get your heart rate above 140. Like, what does that mean? So if I'm obese, not getting my heart rate above 140, well, I'm going to climb a flight of stairs and I'm probably going to be there. But if I'm fit and I've been working out and I have, you know, a fitness regimen, I regularly get my heart rate rate up, it's pretty hard to get to 140. So imagine now showing up to the biggest athletic event of your life and not, not being comfortable getting your heart rate to 140. But then now you need to be endure labor for 36 hours, not just endure the labor, but now you've got to push the baby out, or it's going to land an emergency major abdominal surgery. And then the recovery from that, like, when you talk about mental state, how much more are we altered mentally when it's so much harder to recover um, after having a baby? So like your health is going to directly impact your mental health and your ability to see this pregnancy through. And I think, um, you know, there's so there's so many areas I feel like we can get into to talk about this, but we're really doing a disservice to women and to babies to say that it's okay to be, you know, obese or overweight, we'll take care of you, you'll have the baby, whatever. Um, when like, ultimately, we know that work needs to be done before we, we conceive, and it's going to be a really tough pregnancy, um, and recovery, if not. Well, speaking of pregnancy, another thing that I see in my profession, this is a profession that usually is somewhat fit, you know, some, not all, um, but are also chronically sleep deprived and overstressed. But it seems to be there's a lot more challenge getting pregnant than one would think. So what in all these different people that you get to interact with, what are some of the challenges for conception? Because I think a lot of us believe that, you know, especially when we're younger, that when it's time to, you know, remove birth control, take the, the, the condom off the banana, yeah. um, you know, then boom, a couple of months later, you're going to have a little, uh, you know, pregnancy test with a, with a plus sign on it and off you go. The reality is it took me, me and my, my son's mother, my ex, um, years to conceive to, and to have him. Um, and then, you know, that was, that was it after that. So what are some of the, the factors that are contributing to, to the lack of fertility, male and female in this country? Man, um, I think first and foremost, we have to understand that we live in a very toxic world. And so, you know, there are so many things that I can talk about here, and I will, on what we can control with our own health. But there's a lot of things that we can't. And that makes me personally empowers me to work even harder to control what I can in my home and for my family because the world is toxic. It's getting sprayed with all kinds of things. It's in our water. It's in our food, EMF, like all of the things where if if you want to sit back and still say that those things don't make a different difference, that's fine, but they do. And, um, you know, I think there's a whole, you know, I don't know how controversial you want to get, but there's a whole, like, we're over-prescribed, over-medicated, 
from birth, I think we're over medicated, you know, it's just, it's so easy to throw an antibiotic at this, throw a shot at this. And our detoxification system, the body, the immune system that was put in place is now being overridden by so many other things. So then you talk about like, okay, now we're on birth control for 15 plus years, and our body isn't even cycling on its own. And our, our period is just a bleed because we're missing the pill. It's not even a real period. And it's like, we're going through all of these things to basically deprive our body from the things that it needs to hold life to feel like it's in a safe space to hold life. And then we flip the switch and we're like, okay, I'm ready. So I'm going to get off birth control and I'm expecting to get pregnant. And it's like, that doesn't work. You have a whole shitstorm to unravel here. And so um, I'm a huge fan of conscious conception of knowing that like, hey, I do plan on conceiving. And ideally in a perfect world, if we could start six months to a year ahead of time, that would be awesome. And that's not starting to try to conceive. That's before we even start to try to conceive. There's things that need to start being done. And, you know, we'll start simply with just get full lab panels run, like get a full thyroid panel, a sex panel, men, there's certain things that men need to get run, they need to test, you know, testosterone, iron level, or not iron levels, but just like basic nutrient levels across the board, because it's a two way street. It's, a, you know, it's not the women, they come so, so hard on women when we struggle with conception. But the man is part of the equation, too, and the sperm quality and all of that. So I think as a team, if you're doing conscious conception, um, one of the best things you can do is six months to a year out, like at minimum, if you're not off birth control, give your body six months to a year to learn, to start cycling. And you need to start learning your cycle. You need to know that, hey, I ovulate on this day. I start to bleed on this day. My cycle is this many days. Like if we don't know the basis of our cycle, how can we expect to get pregnant like that? Like you don't even know when you're ovulating, but you want to get pregnant. And now you're exploring, you know, IVF and other options after like, you don't even know how to read your cycle. So that's one thing. Blood work, getting familiar with your cycle, movements, like your body needs and I mean, healthy movement, I mean, movement in a way that if you're already stressed beyond that, get outside and walk three times a week. I'm not saying you have to kill yourself, but you need to get off the couch, you need to stop sitting eight, nine hours a day, like you need sunlight, you need grounding, get your feet on the ground and move. And some of the most healing things come from what we call just the foundation. And that's, you know, as great of sleep, as minimal, you know, eight hours of sleep, great if you can. But waking up first thing in the morning, getting morning sunlight in your eyes, getting your bare feet on the ground, chugging some water, eating breakfast within an hour of waking up. Like these are things that people I feel like I say and they ignore because they're so simple, but they could be the biggest differentials in your health. And your body has to feel safe, like it's in homeostasis. Like if your body can't even keep you alive and it's struggling to keep you going, it's not going to be like, oh, I should also conceive and grow another human inside of me. Like we're smart beings. And so I think those are all really important things to consider. And then also just like the mental preparation of like, are you ready? Have you done, you know, the vagus nerve, some down regulation? Um, do you know how to navigate your nervous system? Do you have things you need to work through first? Do you have previous traumas or, um, you know, big 
emotional conversations or whatever that needs to be cleared for your body to feel safe and at home so that you can think about adding a baby. So those are all things that I think are super important for that preconception window, like pre-preconception is, um, you know, you've got to get a grasp on your mental health, your emotional health and your physical health. And that comes with doing a lot of work. And a lot of times it's uncomfortable work. But until we kind of start shedding those layers and building those lifestyle changes and making this more um, of an intentional act, the body is just like trying to survive at this time. So I think those things are super important in being able to conceive. Yeah, well, that makes perfect sense. And I know we, we chatted about this briefly before we start recording. When I started this podcast, the conversation about mental health in the first responder profession was it's what we see. And as I listened to great person after great person, I started becoming educated on actually the importance of what happens to us before we ever put a uniform on. In that genesis of conversations, some tangents started appearing where it became evident that a lot of postpartum depression, there was acute childhood trauma involved as well. So talk to me about the, the mental health, not just postpartum, but how prepartum is factored in. Yeah, so as women, <clears throat> a lot of people get into energy work or are familiar with their chakras or, um, but I'll just call it your womb space. Like where your womb is as a woman is where we store and hold a lot of our emotions and our traumas and we're able to push them down. So I do a lot of like breath work, polyvagal work with people on their nervous system and we work on the diaphragm and we work on getting blood flow into that womb space, the reproductive organs, things like that. And a big response that I see often, um, like crying when they weren't expecting to cry, big emotional releases, um, literal feelings of nausea um, or being sick, um, vomiting, things like that, because it's starting to bring blood flow, energy and awareness around space and things that we have pushed down for so long. So our womb space, which is where you would grow life, where you would grow a human, is where we tend to push all of our past trauma. And so when we start to bring awareness into that space, a lot of uncomfortable things show up. And I'm a huge advocate for doing this work in preconception because at some point in birth or labor I should say in pregnancy and labor or postpartum, it's going to come up. Um, and if we can get ahead of it, if we can do that before we're pregnant, even better. But a lot of times we get pregnant and um, later on in pregnancy, like all of these anxieties and feelings and these emotions come up like, why are we crying? Why, are, why do I feel this way? Baby's breech. Baby hasn't flipped yet. Baby's sitting really high. We need baby to drop. Why isn't baby coming down? Well, your internal environment is baby's external environment and babies are very intuitive. They learn how to navigate stress in their nervous system by the way you do. So if you're holding on to this trauma and these, you know, tough things that we haven't confronted, we're not ready to do the work for, like we need to let those go for baby to come down, for baby to flip, for dilation to happen, for birth to happen and the ultimate surrender and if we don't, like I said, they're going to come up. So in labor, oftentimes I see um, like labor will stall. 
or um, like I, I mentioned with Breach, where it's like, hey, my first talk with someone as a friend or as a doula is what are you holding on to? Um, maybe it was an argument they had, you know, with their significant other the night before. Maybe it's a tough conversation they need to have with their mom um, that, that they've put off. Or maybe it's previous childhood trauma. Maybe it's sexual abuse, sexual trauma, um, whatever it is those things are coming up and they need to come out. They need to be acknowledged. They need to be released for the physiological course to take its place. And so what I often do is say labor is stalled. I oftentimes bring awareness around that. And I, I leave mom like the time and the space to say like, you need to sit with these emotions. You need to let. And can you still hear me? Sorry. Okay. Um, and, you know, if that means a big, ugly cry, do a big, ugly cry, let those feelings out, let those emotions come out. And oftentimes that comes up. And then labor progresses, then we have a baby and everything just happens as it needs to, but we needed to let that out. And so if I'm working with couples and, you know, I, I chat with them around 36, 37 weeks, I talk about like, are there tough conversations that need to be had? Is there anything you guys need to discuss or put out here? Do you need to talk to your parents? Maybe parents are excited to come see the baby and you don't want them, anyone to come around for 30 or 60 days and you're scared to tell them. Those little things make a big difference. So think about how, how big something like a previous abuse could be or previous trauma could be um, that would make a difference. Now, say we get through the birth, but now that womb space that was just once so full that we were so connected to is now empty and those feelings are still sitting there and your organs are trying to return and shrink and things are moving back into space and things just don't feel right down there. I think so much of postpartum depression is not having dealt with that. It's sitting there, it's raw and it's ready to come up and we're still deflecting it. And in addition to just going through the biggest transition of our lives, we just transitioned into a mother. We're a new being and we need to grieve that past part of us. We need to put it behind us. And in order to do that, we have to acknowledge it and we have to let that come up and say, it's okay. I acknowledge you. And I love who that person was. Um, or, you know, this is an unfortunate thing that happened to me. I'm going to cry. I'm going to go outside. I'm going to yell. I'm going to stomp my feet. I'm going to do whatever I need to release that. And then I'm going to let it go. And so much healing can be done by just letting those things come up. And I say all of this just to just really bring that awareness around like the sacredness that is your womb space and how in childbirth, you start to see these obvious parallels of like, why is all of this stuff starting to come up now? And that's why your body is trying to make room to create new life um, and to grow new life and to get rid of what it no longer, like what's no longer serving it. And so it takes that awareness to bring it up, acknowledge it, feel it, and then let it go. Well, I think when you think of childbirth, you know, there's there's always the word happy, and there is. I mean, what a miracle, you know, and, and you become a parent. And for us men, you know, we just get to stand there and we become a parent, you know, with no, no real trauma. But when we just label childhood childbirth as happiness, we forget that it is physically and mentally a very traumatic experience too. And I can imagine there's almost a, a guilt and shame to a woman feeling negative emotions when everyone around her is telling her that that's supposed to be a beautiful moment. 
Yeah, you know, I've seen um, I've seen many things with birth where, um, you know, like oxytocin, right, is the love hormone, and it's pitocin is the synthetic form of that. And I've seen a lot like birth is an out of body experience, especially when you feel it when you're unmedicated and you really have to go inward and you almost have to detach from the physical realm um, to go inward and to do that dance with your baby and your body and to bring them earthside. And it's an ultimate surrender. And I've seen, you know, where baby comes out and mom is still out of body. She's present. Her eyes are open. She's holding her baby, but she's still up here on this mountain where she just delivered this baby and you're like, she's not even ready to like hold the baby. I've even seen some moms be like, I need like baby's still attached inside of her. And to be like, I need someone else to hold the baby because they're just not back in the physical. And I've also seen moms hold shame because they're like, they don't automatically fall in love with their baby and it takes them some time. And um, you'll get there, like the amount of oxytocin, it, it will come. And oxytocin is love hormone. It comes with the skin to skin, with the nursing, with things like that. But like you just literally, like I mentioned, like this is the biggest transformation of your life. And the two most you know common things we know are life and death, like the portal into life and the portal from life into death are two very similar things. And you are the portal of life for that baby but you've also just birthed yourself into a new being. And so it is, there's a mourning and a grieving that comes with, you know, grieving your past life. Um, and that transition is tough. And that sometimes comes at the cost of maybe not feeling ready to love your baby, to feel overwhelmed. And that's totally normal. And I think for the dads um, and the partners as well, is it's like, you know, your role is still there, but more often than not, like the biggest thing that I see in combating postpartum depression is support. Mom needs to feel support no matter what to recognize this is hard and she's struggling, but I'm here for you. I have meals for you. I will change diapers. I will hold the baby for five minutes if you need a break. Um, but just knowing that like, that support piece is so important. So even though you might feel like you can't do as much with the baby, like mom can't take care of the baby unless she's being cared for as well. And so you have such an important and empowering role in helping her mental health. And that's just being a support and that's recognizing it's hard and letting her cry and letting her know that even when she doesn't want to hear it or accept it, that she's beautiful, that you just saw her bring life into the world. And you've probably as attractive as, is or unattractive as she feels in the moment, you're probably viewing her in a way that is more attractive than you've ever viewed her. And I think that support factor is huge in her mental health. And it's going to bring a new dynamic to the relationship as a whole. Well, based on that kind of um, facade of masculinity as well, I heard you touch on this in one of the interviews that you did that I listened to. But that whole chest beating I'm not changing diapers bullshit that you hear some men spew I mean I from day one I was hands-on with my son and wouldn't have it any other way because you know I was excited to have a child so I don't understand that I think you see a lot more good fathers you know 
taking men specifically in my profession in in the fire service because I'm, I've seen it with my own eyes. I mean, they're absolutely adoring a lot of them, and that's after 24 hours with zero sleep. They come back and then they you know take care of the child too. So I I always question that. If you're the kind of person that buys into that, I'm not going to change diapers bullshit. Then you need to look in the mirror because you decided to have a child, and if a simple nappy change as we call it in England. If that is too much for you, then how good of a parent are you actually if you literally refuse to do the most basal task to be part of that team that is a mother and father or a mother and mother or a father or father? Yeah, you know, I, I'll i be the first to tell you, I am very attracted to, like, my husband is a very masculine man and I am very attracted to it. And I think part of his masculinity is also being in touch with the feminine side, like one of the, I think the most attractive thing that my husband says, and this might sound silly, but he tells me like, I literally was put on this earth to serve you. Um, And it was like, like what, like it takes such a masculine man to be aware of something like that, you know? And I think like, yeah, the biggest thing that I can look back on my own postpartum experiences is like, I didn't have to ask for it. My husband just took on that role and he was excited to do it. And not to say that it was easy. He still had a business to run. He still had other people to take care of and things like that. But he like jumped up to change every diaper for the first two weeks to fill my, my herbal baths up, to hold the baby, to make sure that I was fed. Like those were things that it wasn't even a conversation. It wasn't even like, I remember sitting on the couch and feeling bad that he was folding laundry. And I was like, I'm just sitting here. I can do that. And he's like, no, like you rest, you sit here, you hang out with the baby. Like I've got it. And you know, in the, in the moment you don't realize it, but looking back and and same with just with his words. And I will say like a, a big part of it is like reintroduction to intimacy after you have babies and postpartum, like that's a whole new world. And, you know, his words and his actions really mattered there because it can look really selfish. Like I don't change diapers. You have the babies. I go to work and like, are you, are you healed yet? And you know, it wasn't like that. And I will just say like reintroduction to intimacy and him, like, again, you don't feel like the most attractive person, but he was like, I feel like you just became a woman. Like you were like hot before, but like you are a beautiful woman now. And I love your womanly curves and, you know, things where I'm like, Oh, I just feel soft and blobby and postpartum. And he's just like, he's taking every opportunity, even though I'm not really ready to receive it yet to make sure that I, I like know those things. And that goes such a long way. So then when it is time for reintroduction to intimacy, it's like the doctor tells you at six weeks, you're clear for sex and exercise. And it's like, your body's not ready for sex. Your your reproductive system isn't working. Like you're nursing a baby. You're waking up every three hours. Like you don't feel attractive. You're not just like, let's go get hot and heavy. Some people do, not me. Um, and so I like to bring that up for men, especially is like, I call it reintroduction to intimacy because it's not just like, Oh, let's resume things like, like we used to, because you're different and you birthed this human and um, everything is different. And so there's still, you're still processing the trauma of birth, something coming out and you're like, I don't know if I'm ready for anything to go back in much less feel good. And so I'll never forget like, you know, trying the first time and it not feeling good and just not being ready. And, the first like his response instead of being let down or bummed was just like that was a really good start 
And it felt like to me, like, good, that's a starting place. We can, you know, continue to improve, get better, like as I, as I heal more and more, but like, I needed to hear that. And I imagine, you know, when you're not getting that communication where you feel like you're expected to, you know, be the sexual goddess and perform for your husband and feel good. And like, that's just not the state that your body's in. So having that partnership and that communication, I think, um, for like your postpartum mental health is so important. And I don't, like, I really don't downplay the role of the male in that, because I think it's just, it's profound how much better your, your wife or your partner is going to feel postpartum if they have those simple things from you. Yeah, well, thank you. I mean, it's important for us to get that perspective. And I want to just kind of add on to that one more thing before we go to nutrition if you've got time um pelvic floors so i actually had julian pano on the show i don't know if you've crossed paths with him i think it was our first conversation we because his, his early work was very much focused on broken crossfairs you know and, and all the explosive movements and the muscle imbalances but one of the things he talked about is it is not normal for these female CrossFit athletes to be pissing themselves all over, <laughs> you know, yeah. the stadium. Um, I, you know, I, I witnessed that with my ex as far as, you know, postpartum, you know, there was an issue and she wasn't someone who was who was exercising very much. I don't mean to kind of put her private affairs out there, but that was an issue with her postpartum as well. So mm -hmm. talk to me about, again, myths versus realities. Is that something that a, that a woman is doomed with the rest of her life? Or is there a muscle imbalance and are there exercises that can return that to the way it's supposed to be? Yeah, and I always come back to this because it is it's, it was made in the fitness world to be like, oh, if you're not paying yourself, you're not going hard enough, right? I remember the videos from regionals with like the staff cleaning up the boxes and the mats around it. And it was like this, like this macho thing as a female to like, Oh, you're lifting so heavy and you're jumping and you're peeing yourself. And that's cool. And it's like, let's take a step back for a second. Like, does anyone enjoy peeing themselves? Is it like, are we really going to say it's normal for an adult to pee themselves? No. And like, is it common? Yes, but it's not normal. And no one, no one enjoys that. You can make it, you know, cool in a gym, but it's not. And um, I think that's, you know, again, that goes back to the masculine thing. It's like, oh, well, it's a flaw in me. So let's just make it cool. Everyone does it, right? Um, but human beings are the only biped mammal. All other mammals are, you know, on quadruped, they're on all fours. So our pelvic floor takes the grunts of the load always. And so um, there's many things that cause pelvic floor dysfunction and many people have it. Like I remember peeing myself before I ever had kids and now it all makes sense. I was a gymnast. I spent the, the basis of all of my movement comes from those first 10 years of gymnastics um, and rib flares, rib like flaring, you know, lumbar lordosis um, or extension in the spine um, all of these things where like I had a separation and I was sports specific. I never, you know, my breathing was off. I didn't know anything about breathing. So like these symptoms can occur whether you have children or not, whether you're a male, whether you're a female, but pregnancy, birth, babies in general are going to wreak their havoc on your pelvic floor. It's a lot. And birth is traumatic for the pelvic floor, which is why we focus in our prenatal programs on rehab on strengthening the pelvic floor, but also the biggest thing. And um, 
The biggest misconception in the fitness world is that you need this strong, tight pelvic floor. And for birth to happen, you actually need a pelvic floor to be soft or to relax when it needs to relax. And so we live in this, like, first off, think about stress. Like we live in this very stressed world where it's like, when you're running away from a lion, you're not like nose breathing through your diaphragm, like moving your diaphragm, you're <laughs> right. So we live life in this, like, we're locked up in the core, we're always turned on, our booty's always squeezed, when we work out, we're, you know, tightening up that belt. And like, we just live in like this, like super heightened up in the chest state, right? So sometimes I'm like, what are you doing right now? Just relax. And you're like, oh, I can drop my shoulders, I can relax. We don't know how to relax. So then take weightlifters or sports specific athletes and such. Um, pelvic floors are so hypertonic, because we're constantly turned on that we don't know how to relax them. And the pelvic floor is a muscle, okay? So what we know about muscle contractions, you've got the eccentric, the concentric, and the isometric. It's three different muscle contractions that happen to overall strengthen and balance a muscle. So the diaphragm and the pelvic floor work together. And if we're always breathing in through the chest, pulling everything up, we're getting that eccentric, that upper um, muscle contraction. So we're getting sorry, the concentric, so the muscle shortening, everything is pulling up. For those of you that work out, think about that being like on a deadlift, pulling the bar off the ground 100 times, and then just dropping the bar, not lowering it down, pick it up, drop it, pick it up, drop it. I'm missing that eccentric portion, the muscle lengthening. So then what happens in life when I have to hold on to something heavy and actually set it down, right? I, I haven't strengthened the muscles in that realm. My hamstrings are used to being shortened, but they're not used to being lengthened. So when you think about the diaphragm and the pelvic floor, the diaphragm sits right under your rib cage like an umbrella, the pelvic floor, if it's always pulled up, if it's always tight, then it's really strong and that muscle contraction. But if it's never elongated and relaxed, then it's really weak and that muscle contraction. So what happens is that weakness turns into pelvic floor dysfunction and one of those you know, main symptoms being leaking. Um, that could be when you're coughing, when you're sneezing, when you're running, when you're jumping, when you're weightlifting, whatever it is. And so we actually have to learn how to relax the pelvic floor. Um, and with that comes learning how to breathe and brace appropriately. So we talk about diaphragm breathing, 360 degree expansion. And the big thing here is being able to manage our internal pressurization system. We're not pushing and bearing down. We're not sucking the belly in, we're pressurizing 360 degrees all the way around. And that gives us that elongation of the diaphragm and the pelvic floor that's going to help make it a more well-rounded and balanced muscle. And that's going to help us pressurize that internal pressurization system. So all of that, which is, might be hard to follow, is we have to learn how to move with that. So yes, we do, we call them the birth fit basics, but Simple movements that you've probably heard of, like dead bugs, like bird dogs, side planks, bear crawls, um, you know, tripods, squat to stand, but we're doing it with a specific intention and prenatal postpartum world. Um, we're focusing on doing it in a way that maybe is different from when you're rehabbing your back or something like that actually should be the same, but it's probably different than what you've what you've learned, um, I should say. So I see people in gyms all the time doing those movements. And I'm like, Ooh, I wish I could teach you how to do them properly. Because with intention, you're actually training the core and the pelvic floor in a way that's going to help you 
um, maintain that pressurization. So yes, we can fix it. Um, you don't have to leak forever, but it's going to take some retraining, some brain body connection and some not sexy, not fun work to do. Um, but it's worth it to not pee yourself and you're not in it's not doom and gloom forever. And it's only going to make you a stronger, more well-rounded athlete, less likely to get musculoskeletal injury. Like our core is everything. So if we can't manage the pressurization in our core, it's only a matter of time before the compensations that happen because of that are going to lead to injury. So would it be fair to say then that if you are leaking, that is a kind of precursor or a warning sign for potential back injury down the road? Absolutely. Um, I mean, because it means that your core is not like we want a stable and a dynamic core. So it's got to be able to pressurize, but it's got to be able to move. And I say sports specific athletes because we go years and years doing the same movement patterns. Not every movement pattern is perfect, neutral spine, balance, symmetry. It's like think about um, think about soccer, right? You're always going to plant on one side. That's your stable side. And then the flexi, the swing side is always going to be the other. So if you, if you kick with your right, you always plant left, that's going to be your side. That's going to feel the most stable. And then your right side is going to be the one that you're used to like moving more. You throw, you kick, you shoot, you whatever. And so there's going to be imbalance there. And so if we aren't able to pressurize our core appropriately, those imbalances turn into our norm for movement. So now, when you back squat, you're going to favor your left leg a little bit more. Um, now, when you press the bar overhead, your left side is going to press a little bit more, which is why we don't like to use barbells 100% of the time because we want to balance that out. But those compensations eventually will lead to injury. So um, that is why doing the basics, doing um, well-rounded training, even if you are sport-specific, we still need to train in all planes of motion. We still need bilateral and unilateral we need to help balance out these asymmetries. And that's why we take the time in pregnancy and postpartum. Like in pregnancy, it's like, hey, we don't have time for musculoskeletal injury. And if you're training for birth, like you need to be prepared for whatever you need to be prepared for to get this baby out. But postpartum, like what better time than to start from scratch, build a new foundation and rewire some of that brain body connection and those core movement patterns when you're already going to start at ground zero, build a foundation and work your way back into it. Beautiful. Well, thank you, because that's uh, an amazing explanation. And I'm sure it will send a lot of people to the, the BirthFit site now. I yeah. want to get to where people can find you. But just one more area, you touched on malnutrition and some of the disease processes during pregnancy. Um, I think it's pretty well acknowledged that a lot of people in the US are overfed yet malnourished, which is a, a you know, terrible irony. Um, what are some of the supplements that you like to, to use and or recommend to people? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and I will say when I get supplement recs, like I don't give them lightly because I'm, I'm also someone who believes in supplement with what you need. Don't over supplement. But I think there's things that we are all very deficient in. Um, so I always give the disclaimer of like, when in doubt, get blood work run. Um, I think if you are postpartum and you're listening to this, um, six months to a year postpartum, I like to get pretty good extensive blood work done, full thyroid panel for sure. Um, but, um, if you're pregnant, you know, uh, I will, I'll give a shout out to Lily Nichols. Um, Lily wrote real food for pregnancy. That's a wonderful book. Her website's amazing. It's Lily L I L Y Nichols. And, um, she also has a book, real food for gestational diabetes. 
And it is packed with research and really good research at that. Um, but she has wonderful recipes, blogs, everything that you could ever imagine. And I, I pretty much turn everyone that's pregnant on to what Lily has to say. But um, yeah, it's, I mean, like I said, we live in a toxic world. So when we're talking about just nutrients in general, even our food has a lot of um, like lack of nutrition and food that should be nutritious. So anti-nutrients, like people, there's a big thing on the carnivore diet right now. And I would say that we're more carnivore than not, but people are like really no vegetables. And it's like the anti-nutrients in these vegetables, these days, the soil that they're grown in, the things that are sprayed on them, like I'm not actually getting what I need out of them. So obviously I'm into a real whole food diet. We know that the best thing that you can do for yourself is don't eat out hundred percent of the time, cook your own food, real whole food. And you know, watch the oils that you're cooking with. Now that said, um, it's not realistic for people to eat at home 100% of the time and to have a farmer deliver their food. I get that. But pregnancy is probably if there's a time to focus on things to adjust your budget, and to make things a priority, it would be the quality of the meat that I'm getting huge fan of supporting local farmers, um, organic produce, if you never do organic, now's a great time to do it. Um, but then when you're talking supplements, um, if you're looking for a prenatal, so I really like, there's two lines that I really like for supplements, um, for just your basics. Um, one of them being, so for a prenatal, I like full well fertility is a good one that has a, just a good focus on like packs a punch on the things that you definitely need. There's a lot of new research there. Um, and then thorn is a big, um, big brand that I love. And it's what I use through my pregnancy. So they have prenatals um, and, you know, some like probiotics and things that I, I generally like during pregnancy. So full well, fertility and thorn. Um, one thing that we're learning a lot about are mineral deficiencies, which we all have and our water is so bad. And um, when you are postpartum, the amount of minerals that are lost in birth that baby takes from you, that birth takes from you, like we are so deplenished. So one of the biggest things I recommend postpartum is upping your magnesium, upping your minerals. And again, this isn't medical advice, but this is just what I see over and over um, is like, I love a good high quality salt. Um, Redmond's is a good one. I use Crucial 4. They're a farm here in Texas. They have an Icelandic sea salt. I add it to everything. If I have a headache, if I feel down, I put it under my tongue. Like it is instant. Um, so like we make adrenal cocktails, things like that. Um, and then magnesium is a huge one um, that I think we're all deficient in. And there's so many different kinds of magnesium that I'm a really big fan of. Like you should almost feel like you're overdoing it and it's probably still not enough. So again, blood work can indicate what you need, but I love that. And then lastly, huge fan of organs. Um, we are an organ family, whether like I get most people, you know, curl up their nose and say, ew, and, you know, we get good quality organ meats to eat, but also like if consistency matters, I would rather you take a desiccated organ pill um, daily than eat organs that you're like not stomaching once in a blue moon. So like I love ancestral supplements. I love heart and soil. Um, but any way you can get those organs in, those are nutrients that you're probably not getting anywhere else. Um, I give them to my kids as well. And, you know, I just feel like your body, like when you get them in, your body just 
takes a collective exhale and is like, thank you. <laughs> you feel the difference. Yeah, I was actually raised on a lot of like liver and kidneys when I was young, but it's something I haven't eaten for a long, long time. And I see, you know, the the, the kind of down to earth people like yourself. I see the insta famous Liver King and some of those other people too. And there's obviously, a, you know, there's the, there's a middle ground there. But um, I'm interested to try the supplements actually because I haven't put that yeah, in my diet yet. That's impressive. Kidneys are tough. Kidneys are one that I'm just like, oh, it, the, the texture is rough. Um, my husband actually does raw organs and he's so used to it now that he downs, but he'll even tell you kidneys are, kidneys are tough. Um, you, even if you cook them any certain way or flavor them, it's just, we can't get past that one. So um, kudos to you. I can see why you don't eat them anymore, but yeah, we, we try to make them more palatable, more exciting, like liver smoothies where it's covered in fruit. It's a great way to get it in. Um, I will tell you, this will be, this will be a fun one just for those listening. Um, one organ that my husband has been getting, if you want to think of it as an organ, it's not really, but it's testicles. Um, it's not an organ, but like supports like there's a lot of things for um, prostate health and things like that. But besides it looking funky, and you have to like get the layer of skin off just to get into the good stuff. It's he compared it to like sashimi, and said it's the most just like raw fish with a blank taste and so we actually had friends recently come over for dinner because they wanted to try some some different organs and some things his bowls. and he, <laughs> he made a testicle ceviche and so it was literally like it tasted and looked just like ceviche but it was you know cow testicles so um that's an interesting one and i know a lot of people will be like ew that's gross but surprisingly it was way more palatable than liver yeah, that's uh, that's crazy. But no, I mean, that's the thing. You look around the world, people eat all kinds of things. My wife's half Filipino. So, you know, what her mother you know eats back in, in her original homeland is very different than, than what we see in restaurants today. Yeah, absolutely. So one more thing. Um, I want to get to the work life very, very quickly because it was something that Isabel asked me to ask you. But what about collagen? There's something that I found, you know, huge benefit from. I know you, you seem to enjoy bubs as well. What's your, your bub range that you use? Yes, we love bubs. Um, we use it in everything. <laughs> um, so I will say that collagen, when you, uh, I'll relay this to like postpartum healing and recovery, like it takes tissue on average 280 days to heal. And so even when you feel healed externally, internally, things are still healing. And obviously your diet um, depends on that. So when I say it's on average, like the, the more nutrients and things that you're getting to help heal and repair those tissues, the better. But 280 days is almost the length of a pregnancy. So your postpartum for, as, you know, your immediate postpartum is for as long as you're pregnant for the most part. And so um, we love Bob's collagen, but we put it in everything. And I, I am a huge fan for that postpartum, whether it's in your teas and your coffee, you're stirring it into your rice, um, or you're going to get it from like a bone broth or whatever. I think it's a huge huge um, missing piece in a lot of people's diets and it's going to be great for that tissue health uh, tissue healing connective tissues just everything kind of returning back to quote-unquote normal state but also remembering we have a hormone present for as long as we're breastfeeding called relaxin and that makes our um, ligaments a little bit more malleable and and less stable as well so I think anything that you can add there um, collagen wise is great and gelatin too um, we make a lot of gummies and things like that with them. But yes, I would say that um, in a day's time, we go through, <laughs> I think when we get like bubs 
orders at our house. We probably get like four containers at a time monthly because we just, between the kids and us, we're just constantly putting it in everything. Yeah, and I've watched it do amazing things in my body from my um, obviously hair, skin, nails, but also um, my GI tract. I was amazed how much better that was functioning after taking collagen. Yeah, and um, they have an NCP powder too. And I will say that like gut health, but for those who struggle with like ADHD, attention issues, things like that, I know that that tends to help. So um, I like to give that to my toddler just to rope him in sometimes a little bit. Um, but yeah, I'd like I like the whole bubs line in general, they have like the specific one for hair, skin and nails. And um, I think they just crush it there. So I love them. And I, I couldn't appreciate their product more because it's a regular rotation in our house. Brilliant. All right. Well, then one quick thing before I let you go, Isabel asked me, she said you're you know you're a gym owner you're um you know part of the birth fit uh, family you're a mother how do you balance all the things that you have to do work-wise with the time to be able to prepare healthy meals for your families because she said and i agree with this completely we see these posts we listen to these podcasts we're like oh that's what i need to do and then you actually insert yourself back in your life and you're like how the fuck am i supposed to do all these things at the same time so what are some of the the principles that you use to be able to find that balance um well two things i can't i can't not mention this because it's just the truth my husband cooks 100 percent of our meals so that is very helpful um and that doesn't mean that it's easy. That means that I'm fully on taking kids and responsibilities and things like that so that that gets done. So I am very fortunate and I can't not say that, but I will say just from a, a place of like family values and why we continue to cook every single meal that we eat and things like that. Like, yes, we are busy. We run a business. We have multiple jobs here and there. And I'm also, you know, with my kids pretty much full time. And so, um, you know, some of the things is I think we just don't compromise on the things that are the most important to us. So when we're thinking about budget, right, if we're ever making, we're big budget people, we, you know, look at it every month. If we're making changes to our budget, it's probably our food. And it's like, okay, if we were over last month, do we need to up our food budget and lower it somebody, somewhere else? And so, um, you know, we buy our meat from a local farmer, we buy specific produce, things like that. And we don't compromise on that. It's like, I'd rather be less than somewhere else and prioritize the food that we put on the plates for our family. Um, we've gotten, or I will say he's gotten really, he's really good at prepping things. So we eat leftovers. We cook a lot of food. We eat leftovers, which is helpful. Um, the Instapot is great. He's just gotten really good at like, he can throw meat in the sink to thaw in the morning. And then at 5.30, throw a bunch of stuff in the Instapot and at 6.30, we're eating like a gourmet meal. He's really good at that. But I will say that with our kids, like we keep it simple and that we cook what we want or what we want to eat and our kids eat the same thing. They don't have an option um, and they don't know any difference. And I hear this all the time and they're like, well, my kids just won't eat it and they only want, they only want the chicken nuggets instead or they only want this instead. And I'm like, do your kids, um, do they drive to the store? No, they're, they're six years old. Do they have money to buy their own things? No. So who's supplying the food in the house? I am. Okay, well, that's the problem, right? Um, and so I know people can get heated on this, but they've only ever known we cook what we cook and they eat what we eat. And if they choose not to eat that, that's on them. 
Um, so I would say that we just keep food and like the kind of food as a high priority in our family. Our day revolves around it, whether it's pulling things out in the morning, making it when the kids are napping um, or like I'm watching them so he can make it in the evening. Um, so, yeah, I would just say it's such a big, important factor in our lives that we aren't willing to compromise on it. And we're both on the same page with that. Um, and it's just become like food is our priority and it is the most important thing I think that we do collectively as a family. So we're both in on the same page to support each other and making sure that we're eating somewhere up within standards of our values at all times, even when we're going out or we're on vacation or things like that, we're, we're doing things necessary to maintain our nutritional standards. Beautiful. I love it. Thank you. Um, yeah, I think that's yeah. the thing. It's funny. People, you know, got so into the meal prepping. And then when you take a step out, you mean you mean leftovers? <laughs> if you just if you make two or three days worth of food, it's not prepping. You just made two or three days worth of food. And I think that takes a lot of the complication. Or it doesn't need to be in multiple Tupperware things. It can still be in the saucepan you cooked it in. Just spoon another yes. portion out and eat it the following night. Yeah, we're we're picky, but we're not picky. Um, so yes, I totally agree. We'll cook a big pot of rice and it rarely gets bagged. It just, we just keep going in the rice maker every now and then and heating it up. So yeah, we keep, we try to keep it simple, but also not, not compromise on what's important. Brilliant. Well, I'm sure people, you know, have so many questions. I'm sure there's a lot of people that want to really dip into the, the birth fit side, maybe even if they're local, look at your gym um, or follow you on social media. So where are the best places online for all the different things that we've discussed today? Um, definitely the BirthFit website is going to have everything BirthFit that you need, birthfit.com. Uh, we have a ton of blogs. We have a ton of resources, online programs. We're also on Instagram at BirthFit. Lindsay and I are very accessible. So you can reach out to us, you know, there or info at BirthFit and um, our admin cat will get it to us. Um, if you want me personally, it's um, Instagram is at Leah underscore Barto. And our gym is at Behemoth Gym, B-E-H-E-M-O-T-H, Behemoth Gym. Um, but yeah, we are, I would say all of us are accessible, whether it's through the gym, myself personally, Lindsay or BirthFit. And we love to um, chat, answer questions. Um, I've got a birth education coming up next month. So if you're pregnant and you're looking for some virtual learning, definitely catch us there. Well, Leah, I want to say thank you so much. We've been chatting for two hours. It's a little bit longer than, than I'd said <laughs> in our initial uh, introduction, but there's just so much to pull out and, and your lens from all these different, you know, chapters in your life have been fascinating how they all kind of interact is even more fascinating. So I just want to thank you so much for being so generous with your time and coming on the Behind the Shield podcast today. Yeah, thank you for having me. I enjoyed it so much.